So we are going to, at, at some point, probably next year, talk about Revelation, the book of Revelation, and the book of Daniel. Those things are coming. I, I'm going <laughs> to spend a couple of weeks before Advent talking about Israel. What is Israel? Now, the reason for this, I don't want anyone to assume why I'm doing this, so I'm going to just simply tell you. It has to do with eschatology. That is the reason. Um, Israel is in the news uh, a great deal right now. There's a a conflict going on there. And and there are a lot of Christians, I think, who are very easily confused about what our response to that conflict ought to be. What is our relationship to Israel? Not as a nation, but as a people, as Christians. Um, There's a lot about Israel that uh, I think confuses people. And, and it has to do with eschatology. I don't know. Recently, I've heard a great deal. Apparently, the end, of, the end is coming very soon. Get your red heifers. Invest in limestone. There's a new temple coming. and all, I, I just hear out, out, outrageous things. And at a recent men's meeting, uh, this actually does occur. At the men's meeting, uh, we were having a good time. But I asked, what, what would you guys suggest I talk about? And this was suggested. For, for the sake of the church and the sake of its understanding of the Bible, you ought to explain who and what Israel is. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is the true Israel, not the church. Um, and, and right out of the gate, I, I hope I said something that's confusing to you. So without, without further ado, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for fulfilling in him, Lord, all the law of Moses, all the promises that, Yah, that you, Yahweh, made in the Old Testament, all of the hopes and dreams and aspirations, not only of Adam and Eve in the garden, but of your people throughout time. We thank you for your son, and we pray, God, that you would help us to understand him and as his people understand ourselves better this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, and amen. Now, we must come to an understanding of the difference between the Jewish people, ethnic Jews, and biblical Israel. Now, there's a lot to this. Partially, though, uh, it's not just theological confusion, which there there is a great deal of that. I'm of the mind, and I believe that this is true, that after the Holocaust, everyone uh, is, is very cautious, overly cautious, about criticizing the Jews. The Jews. Even saying the Jews, I feel like the police might come in here at any moment and haul me off. (laughs) But the Jews crucified Jesus. Now, I understand we're modern Christians. We spiritualize it. You crucified Jesus. This is what I've been hearing since I became a Christian. But standing there in Jerusalem, the Jews crucified Jesus. And it seems weird for some people to say that. And it seems like when you criticize the, the religion of Judaism, when you talk about Jews, you have to be very careful because people easily confuse it for anti Semitism. Okay? You can be, I'm opposed entirely to Allah. I'm opposed to Muhammad, I'm opposed to, to Islam, but that does not mean that I hate Persians, right? My, my, my disgust with Islam has to do with Islam, not Persians, not Middle Easterners, not people who live in Iran. So my disgust with Judaism, my hatred of Judaism, is the same as my hatred for Hinduism. It's the same as my hatred for Buddhism. And this is us learning how to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves, and, and I, I, the romance of this, there is an author named Kaim Potok. I don't know if you've, you've heard of him. He's one of my favorite authors. I, I've read all of his books. I've read all of his plays. I read essays about him. He's phenomenal. And I used to have such a romantic concept of Jews when I became a Christian. I was like, well, can, can I wear the little hat and, and get the curls? And I, I, I wanted almost to become a Jew. I had to get talked down off of that cliff <laughs> because I was like, yay, we're the people of God. We're one with them. 
And I had to go through a great deal of, of study in order to understand who Israel is. And, and so this is not something that I'm just, I pulled some books off of a shelf, and I'm just going to tell you now what N.T. Wright and, you know, Matt, you know, some commentators on Matthew have to say. This is a personal struggle that I've had, and I want you guys to come through it and to think more clearly about Jesus. Okay, there's a lot of confusion about this that arises from our general lack of biblical knowledge. Biblical literacy is a problem in the modern church. I didn't know if you knew that. Most, most of us do not know our Bibles very well. I remember I was, in a, I was in an examination of a pastor, and there was one guy who was really tough, Ralph Smith from Japan, and, and he asked the person who was being ordained, could you take us on a walk through the water, bodies of water in the Promised Land as recorded in the book of Joshua? And I thought, there's water? I was, like, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. And then you go and you look, there's rivers, there's lakes, right? And, and when I say biblical literacy, I mean something just like that. We don't know very much about the Bible. We don't, right? When, when he says he goes to, sh- to this place or that place, how many of you guys in your minds can picture the place that they're talking about? But it's, but it's deeper than that. We, we are very confused, and I think Christians have been confused for a long time, about the continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants. Okay? The Old Testament, Testament means covenant, the Old Testament is a record of the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the record of the New Covenant. And one is not completely separate from the other. God never just starts completely over. He always takes leaven. He takes a little of the old loaf when he's making a new loaf. And there is a great deal of continuity between the New Testament and the Old Testament, but there are also a great number of things that don't carry over. They don't carry over. And this has been a question since the beginning. <laughs> I'm just going to, whatever, I'm just going to do it. It's my job. Nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament are any of the apostles confused about including children in the covenant promises. Because in the Old Testament, they were always included. In the New Testament, there's no one who, it's, it doesn't become an individualistic religion. And you point to me at a single time where an apostle was confused about this. Okay, now, show me how many times in the New Testament the people who were becoming Christians were confused about how Jewish they had to be. Okay, the E on the I chart, the thing everyone was asking is, how much of this do we bring over from the old? What is still going on? How do we worship? What about the calendar? What about Passover? What is the Sabbath? What day do we meet on? What do I wear? What do I eat? All of these questions are through Acts and and Paul's work and John's work and Peter's work. How Jewish do we have to be is the question. And I love that in Acts 15, the answer to that question, to answer that question, they use the law of Moses. Right? They use something that most Christians think has no, is not applicable to us anymore to answer the question of how Jewish you have to become. And if you go and you read Acts 15, you'll see that that's what they do. Right? How much of the law do we bring over? Well, let's go to the law and find out. Now, Jesus is the answer to all of our confusion. Jesus is the answer to all of our questions. It is the Sunday school answer for a reason. And sometimes what we need to do is stop in our maturity and go back and look at the Sunday school answer, okay? What do we do with the law of Moses? What is the kingdom of David? What about a temple? What about God's choosing and setting aside a peculiar people for his treasured possession? Are there any hopes and aspirations for Israel from the Old Testament yet unfulfilled? Are there any promises unfulfilled? Are there any prophecies unfulfilled? What do we do, right? What do we do 
with the sacrificial system from the Old Testament? What does that have to do with worshiping on Sunday morning? The answer to all of these questions is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Okay? Jesus is the answer, but how? Especially when there is a nation state called Israel fighting for the same promised land that the people of God fought for. It rouses our romantic and sentimental and religious affections. But should it? There is a Western nation with a parliamentary system of government that geographically overlaps with the kingdoms of David and Solomon, as recorded in First and Second Kings. Those current Jewish people are Semitic. They are descended by birth from the 12 tribes of Jacob. Their father by birth is Abraham, but their spiritual father is the devil. Their spiritual father is the devil. Just like Mormons and Buddhists and Muslims, they are the enemy of the gospel. They were from the very beginning. In Acts, they were the enemy of the gospel, and they remain the enemy of the gospel and not its allies. They are not the Israel of the Exodus. They are not the Israel of the conquest of the promised land. They are not the post-exilic Israel who rebuilt the temple. They are not the Israel for which Christ died, rose, ascended, and now rules from the right hand of the Father. The concept of Judeo-Christian is syncretism. That's not good. That's the mixing of truth with falsehood. There is no such thing as Judeo-Christian. There is Western, right? There's Western, but there is no such thing as Judeo-Christian. That is a romantic idea that elevates Judaism, a false religion, equal to Christianity in order for us to keep it around when it doesn't belong. If I came in here and I was like, well, you know, I have this Buddhist Christian principles, and we're going to defend them now. Right? I, have a, I have a cousin, he's a Buddhist, but because you're, when you're a Buddhist, you can also be other things like Christians. And I don't, because he adds Buddhist to the word Christian, I don't have any sentimental feelings about it. But when I say Judeo-Christian, doesn't our hearts stir just a little? Why is that? Why do we feel like, yeah, these, are, these people are of us, these ideas are of us? But the concept of Judeo-Christian is something that needs to be repented of in pulpits and university lecture halls. Christ does not recognize a Judeo-Christian ethic, no matter how many YouTube subscribers Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro may have, right? There's a great deal. We should listen to both of them. But they are not espousing Judeo-Christian beliefs that that are coherent and consistent with the Bible. Just like I can read Plato and I can find, because of common grace, things there that are true, right? That does not make Plato a Christian. It doesn't doesn't make Platonic... Um, philosophy equal to the works of Paul. And this is what people do. They elevate Jewish ideas, Jewish talkers, Jewish speakers, Jewish ideas. They elevate them to be equal with Christianity, and it is not. (laughs) I really, I'm going to go on, but I just want everyone to understand where the session of Redeemer stands on these issues. The chosen people of God are not found in synagogues, they are not found in temple mounts, they are, not found in, or they are not found in anywhere but the Christian church. The commonwealth over which Christ reigns does not speak Hebrew, it does not celebrate the Passover, it does not keep the law of Moses. The church, the kingdom of Christ, the true Israel, are all one in Christ. It has its own ethical standards, its own calendar, its own feast, singular, not plural, its own worship, its own socio-political structure, and its own constitution. It is a separate nation from every nation in the world because it overlaps all of them. Right? You are citizens of heaven, you are citizens of the commonwealth of Israel, and, and because you are citizens of that, it, it supersedes any other um, 
any other loyalty that you have in this world. Okay? It supersedes all of them. Israel, the chosen son of God, is Jesus. The church is Israel only because we are in Christ. This is the, there's something called replacement theology, and it is also false. The church is not Israel. Jesus is Israel, and you're in Israel or not based on your relationship to Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're in Israel. He is Israel, and our association with him defines who and what we are as the people of God. We are what we are and only in reference to him. The church is the body and bride of Christ. We obey the law of Christ. We worship on the Lord's day. Our feast is the Lord's supper. All of it is associated with him. Okay? In everything we do liturgically, everything we do religiously, everything that we do with our rites and our rituals, our sacraments, everything is focused on him now. And anything that isn't focused on him has got to go. Right? This is why in the Reformation, when we looked at the Roman Catholic Church and they have seven sacraments, including marriage, including last rites, they have all these things that Jesus did not tell us to do. And it doesn't, it doesn't fix it to go further back in the Bible and bring forward a bunch of stuff that the Jews had to do from the Old Testament that also we don't have to do. We have one day, we worship one Lord, there's one unifying baptism, there's one feast, and that feast is to be declared until he returns. To put it bluntly, <laughs> just because I've, I've kind of had some nuance at this point, <laughs> To put it bluntly, the modern Christian is the heir of Abraham, of Moses, of David, and the prophets because of Jesus. The Old Testament is our history. The continuity between the Testaments is Jesus, not Moses. Jesus, not David. Baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is our entrance into this community, not our birth, not our ethnicity. We are a people of faith, not fleshly descent. Israel's feast is the Eucharist, not the Passover, and he... And we obey the law of grace, not the law of Moses. Now, Abraham and Moses were both Christians, not Jews. Right? There's, we, we, this is where we get very, very, very confused. Moses was not a Jew in the same way that Chaim Potok is a Jew. And, and I really, you guys need to really, it may struggle with the logic here. But Abraham was a Christian. Moses was a Christian. In John 8.56 and John 5.46, we're told that they saw the day of Christ, that their hope and faith was in Christ. Their hope and faith, right, was not part of, of rabbinic Judaism as it currently exists. Christ stands in the center of human history, and all that is recorded in the Old Testament flows towards his life and ministry, and, and, and while all that is recorded in the New Testament flows from his life and ministry. We are the people of God because we have the Father, and we have the Father because we have Jesus. Jews, like Buddhists and Satan worshipers, do not. You cannot have the Father apart from the Son. There is no other way to the Father except through the Son. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? We, he did not leave an Old Testament, Moses prescribed back door into heaven. You come there through the Father by way of Jesus, and there's no other way. Now, C.S. Lewis, how did I work even C.S. Lewis into a sermon on this? <laughs> he says somewhere, I couldn't even find it, but I know he says it because I've read it several times. He says that the Jewish faith is less wrong than Islam, but it's still wrong. 
right? Just like you can have a boy who sits down and does math problems, and you could have one kid who's less wrong than another kid. They, if, they're, if, they, if it doesn't add up, the problem is still wrong, right? Now, Judaism is closer to the kingdom of heaven than, than Islam, than Buddhism, but they're still wrong, right? They're still outside. They're still looking in on us who are, the, who are Israel only because of our relation to Jesus, The Jewish people have rejected the Father because they have rejected the Son, and they don't get partial credit. They don't get a pass. They don't get a, well, close enough, guys, good try. They can wear whatever they want. They can explain away the sacrificial system in whatever goofball way they can come up with, which I have heard some doozies. There was a Jewish bookshop near the Christian bookshop I used to work at for a short period of time where I had to quit or get fired. I was a troublemaker even then. But I used to go into this Jewish bookstore, and I had one question. How do you deal with sin? Just tell me. How do you deal with it? And they would go on these extremely long explanations, and it was just nonsensical. There's no, you're left with nothing. If you, can't do, if you can't go to Jerusalem, slaughter an animal, and go into the temple, and sacrifice there because of your sin, you have no other option. There's no other option in the Old Testament. They can sing psalms as loudly as they want with all the fervor that they can muster. They can, like the prophets of Baal, and they do, cry out to their God to the point of cutting themselves with flint knives, trying to rouse him from his stupor, but their God does not hear them because their God does not exist. He cannot and he will not answer them. May he be damned today forever. Okay, and, and this is, if I were talking about Islam, and I said, may Allah be damned today forever, I think uh, most of us, conservative as we are, would give a little cheer. I say, may the God of the Jews be damned today forever, and aren't we all just slightly uncomfortable with that very idea? Now, why? Why do we have this emotional reaction? What is it about them where, where, that confuses us so? I can't believe I wrote. Now, I want to be really emphatic at this point about Redeemer's position on this. Okay? The nation of Israel that currently resides in the Middle East is an ally of the United States. It is a Western country. It is an important distinction. Unlike Ukraine, we ought to send the 82nd Airborne as many Abrams tanks as we can, but that has nothing to do with their religion. That has nothing to do with their religion. All of our affinity with them should be the same as our affinity to Texas, to Taiwan, to Japan, to Latvia, to Ukraine, and to South Africa. But that affinity is geopolitical, it's nationalistic, it's imperial, and it's Western. Religiously, modern Israel is a state like Egypt or Iran, right? And as an empire, we need them. We need a buffer between, this is what empires need, they need buffers between us and the bad guys. And in the current conflict, there is a bad guy, and it's not Israel, okay? Whatever you read on CNN, whatever you're hearing in the news, there is a bad guy, and it's not Israel. It's Hamas. And we ought to back them as far as we possibly can. But that is not a religious or theological position. It is because I'm an American, and I'm pro-West. Okay. (laughs) Just so that everyone understands where we're at. We are now going to look at the fact that Jesus is the true Israel of God. The Bible teaches that Jesus consciously understood that he was the embodiment of and the fulfillment of the calling of Israel. But what does that mean, that he he self-consciously understood this? 
The apostles also understood that Jesus was the true Israel of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a true Israel, right? We understand that he's the greater David. You have a person, and this person isn't as good as this person. But how is a nation of people superseded by one person? How is this one greater than all of these? Today, we're going to discuss what the, what the true Israel of God is, and it's Jesus. And then we're going to go on, we're going to look at the true kingdom of Christ. And then we're going to look at what the, um, the, the commonwealth of Israel consists of God's chosen people from um, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to look at these doctrines. What is the kingdom of Israel? What does it mean to be the chosen of God? And lastly, what does it mean that we are an olive tree, the fruitful bride and vine of Christ? Because that image, the olive tree, is used in the Old Testament of Israel, and it's carried forward into the New Testament. And the more we understand olive trees in the Bible, and and they're used typologically, the more we will understand what it means for us to be the people of God. Now, if you open the New Testament, I remember I was a new Christian, and I thought, well, I'm going to start with the New Testament, because it's all about Jesus, right? And I sat down, and I opened to Matthew 1, and I was overcome almost instantly by utter and complete confusion, right? Who are these people? There's no, he doesn't explain who Abraham is. He doesn't explain what the 14 generations means. 14 generations, how, how much time is that? Why is he calling it generations? Who is Abraham? What is captivity? Who is Babylon? If you sit down and just simply start reading Matthew chapter 1, it gets very confusing very quickly. Clearly, there's a story already in progress that this is coming into in the middle of. And, and, and if you want to do yourself a favor, okay, do you, do you want to know the worst page in your Bible? There's one page that in every single Bible they print ought not to be printed. And that is the one that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. In, in every single Bible that comes into my house, I open it up and I tear that page out. And I crumple it up and we stomp on it a little bit. Right? Because the story goes from Malachi to Matthew. If you just start in Matthew, confusion abounds to no end. There is clearly something already going on. But what? What is already going on? The gospel accounts are the crescendo of the story of Israel, the chosen people of God, the son of Abraham, the 12 tribes who descend from the patriarchs, who wrestled with God and man and prevailed, Israel, through whom Yahweh declared that he would bless all the nations of the world. Israel, the nation over which Yahweh placed his son David on an eternal throne. All these types and shadows point to one man. And that man is Jesus. Matthew 1.1 echoes the language of Genesis because we're talking about new beginnings, introducing the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, it says. That's what it actually says. Here are the generations of Jesus Christ, which is exactly how the book of Genesis, right, there's 10 times in it where they talk about the genesis of, or the, the generations of this person or that person. So he's, he's self-consciously echoing Genesis because Jesus is fulfilling stuff that goes back to the very beginning. Okay, the, Jesus is the, is the fruit of this long family tree. Matthew places the birth of one miraculous boy within the context of 42 generations of a single family. Right? And people come into that family, but, but if you look, there's 42 generations recorded in Matthew 1, and, and the result of that family tree is one man, Jesus. His story is, in, is, is not independent of the larger story. 
He is the crescendo and fulfillment to the story. The story of 42 generations from Genesis to Malachi reads like an unfinished narrative, an incomplete story with unresolved plots and promises. If you start in Genesis 12 and you read through to the end of our Bible, which is Malachi, you're left wondering what in the world, right? What, what is going to happen now? What about, what about the promises to Abraham? What about the Davidic king? What about the law of Moses? You're left at the end w- w- extremely unsatisfied. If a movie ended like Malachi ends and there was nothing further, we, you ought to hate that movie, right? <laughs> it's, it, and it's, it's the cliffhanger idea. Well, what's going to happen next? How is this all going to be resolved? Then you turn to Matthew chapter 1, and it, picks, and it summarizes the entire, all the books that have come before in this genealogy and saying, okay, now we're getting to the conclusion of the story. Now it's the third act, right? The third act where the real action happens, where, where the real resolution begins to unfold. Now, N.T. Wright, in his book, How God Became King, writes, just as Genesis 1 through 3 tell the story of the human plight through the pattern of glorious beginnings, rich vocations, and then horrible failure in exile. So Genesis 12 through to the end of Malachi tell the story of Israel with tales of glorious beginnings, rich vocations, and then horrible failure in exile. Right? So 1 through 3 tells a story, Genesis 1 through 3, and then Genesis 12 through the end of Malachi tells um, a different story, but with exactly the same plot points. Right? It starts great, you're called to this high thing, you're, you're one with God, and then you, you fail, and you fall, and you go into exile. And that's what happened to Adam in the garden, and that's what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. Many Christians assume that the Old Testament story of Israel was abandoned during the latter prophets. Well, it, it, he tried with Israel, but he didn't get all the way. He couldn't fulfill his, his mission with him, so he just forgets about Israel. And now Jesus is this thing that's completely new. Right? He, he's like a Methodist. Right? He's so completely separate from anything in the Old Testament that we consider Jesus this own weird enigma all of his own. Yes, I said Methodists. Many think that Genesis 12 through Malachi 4 was God's first attempt to save humanity, and having failed, he gave it up, and he begins completely fresh. Forget Moses, forget the Torah, forget the prophets, forget Israel, forget all that. And that's a lot of what a lot of Christians think. There's no continuity here. Okay, Jesus is the reality to which all of, all of the references in the Old Testament point. All Old Testament prophecies, laws, stories, characters, liturgical calendars, rituals, promises are fulfilled in him, and there is nothing left undone. Let me say that again. There is nothing in the Old Testament left unfulfilled or unfinished in Jesus Christ. It's all there in him. If you turn to Genesis 12, we're not still waiting for some promise to the Jewish nation that is just hanging out there like a dangling chad from Genesis that we're still waiting for it to come into fulfillment. It's Jesus is the answer. He is the one who accomplished everything that all of the Old Testament points to. Now, to comprehend this, what we're going to do quickly is look at an overview of the book of Matthew. through the lens of Matthew 2.15, and then we're going to look at an overview of Romans through the lens of Romans 1, 1 through 7. Okay? So let me just go to these two places, and I, I want to give you now a key that I hope you go, and when you read the New Testament now, you see something that you did not see before, something that is there in, on every page, every paragraph, nearly every word. Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Well, I'll go back to 14 just to make it make more sense. Okay. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, for the evangelists, Jesus' identity as the true Israel is fundamental to their narratives. The typology throughout Matthew, for example, is a thread that provides the continuity, overwhelmingly, that Jesus is Israel. Matthew chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 is a wonderful example of this. An angel appears to Joseph, commanding him to go to Egypt so his family might remain safe. According to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it is precisely at this point when Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 is fulfilled. Matthew claims that Hosea 11, 1 was fulfilled in Jesus' journey to Egypt as a baby. Matthew identifies the son of Hosea 11, 1 with Jesus. And Hosea 11, 1 is talking about Israel. If you go back and you look, he, right, we had it read for us today. He, he's talking about Israel. Israel, which is a nation made up of millions of people, and he's saying, out of Israel I have called my son, which is his calling back to the Exodus, which also was talking about a nation. And here Matthew takes this verse about a nation, and he uses it about one person. Now, what is going on? Why is he doing this? Now, R.T. France, um, a commentator on the book of Matthew, one of the best, says that this quotation depends for its validity on the recognition of Jesus as the true Israel. And he notes that Matthew 4 also equates Jesus and Israel with the title son. Okay? There, there is a son, and that son is Jesus. That is who we've all been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. And, and picking Abraham and his family was, in, was the means of God getting to the point where you, he brought Jesus into the world. So the family, right, the 42 generations, the purpose of the story of the 42 generations was to produce the new Adam, the true Israel of God, who would deliver the world from Satan's sin and death. Now, Matthew follows a Jesus as Israel typology. That is, in its general outlines, chronologically arranged, it is plausible that he would continue that typology straight through. He starts this way, right? He, he starts with Genes- the generations of Jesus, which is an echo of Genesis. But then Matthew goes on, and, and the structure of his gospel follows the Old Testament perfectly. Matthew repeatedly treats Jesus as the embodiment of the nation, and the sequence of his narrative follows the order of the Old Testament history rather closely. All Israel is baptized in the sea, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, and all Israel is tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 years. Jesus is baptized and then led into the wilderness to be tempted for Satan by 40 days. Right? Do you see? Baptized in the Red Sea, and you go into the wilderness for 40 years. Baptized, and then you go into the wilderness for 40 days. Because Jesus is Israel, and what he experiences in his life is what Israel experienced in its life over 42 generations. Now, what does that even, this is so poetic, it's actually difficult for modern people to understand. What do you, like, it's mythic, but it's not mythology. It's poetic, but it's actually historical fact. So you go back to Exodus, and all that stuff you're reading about Israel all of that going into the Red Sea, all that wandering around in the desert is talking about Jesus. Yes, and you go to the Matthew and you see that he too is baptized and he too goes into the wilderness. And you're like, but I, like, who, who's, 
how is this function? How did, how did he come up with this idea? Do you know how hard it is to foreshadow in a story? Right? I'm going to, like, even just foreshadowing. If you're going to sit down and you're going to write a decent novel, good luck, and, and you're going to foreshadow, it's really hard. But how is it that, G, that God is foreshadowing the life of a single individual through the history of this huge nation over 42 generations? The early chapters of Matthew coincide with the Torah, the Exodus, the desert wanderings, and then the giving of the law on the mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus moves into a period after that of conquest and confrontation where he goes around the promised land and fights all the enemies of God. And then does he win? Yes, right? He he takes the whole land and then he goes to Jerusalem, the capital. Jesus' Passion Week is filled with prophetic words against Israel's apostasy, mirroring the great prophets of the Old Testament. Then his trial, his death, his resurrection coincide with the exilic periods of the Old Testament. But the difference is that he doesn't stay in exile. Right? If you follow Jesus' story in Matthew, it's exactly the same as the history of Israel with one important and distinct difference. He wins. Now, in the Jewish Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, let me say, the Hebrew Bible, it's actually not Malachi that ends the book. It's Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles 36.23, right, in that, it's, it's fascinating. Cyrus, having received all the kingdoms of the earth from Yahweh, the God of heaven, commissions, and it's called the decree of Cyrus, he tells the Jews to go up and finish building the temple in Jerusalem. That's how the Jewish Old Testament, their Bible, how it ends. And how does the Gospel of Matthew end? Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. And so you see, on purpose, Matthew is copying, right? He, he sees in the, in the structure of Jesus' life the history of Jesus' people. And, and that is sto- the kind of storytelling that God does. It's mythic, it's poetic, but it's historical fact. And that I can't even deal with, how insanely awesome that is. And when you're sitting down and reading the Bible, we are so shallow. We are so shallow. Something like this requires a great deal of reading, a great deal of devotion, a great deal of prayer, a great deal of seeking, a great deal of knocking, a great deal of devotion on our part to the word of God to understand it on this level. And, and, and going back, the prophetic part of this whole thing is that we're all befuddled about modern Israel because we don't recognize Israel from the Bible. Because what, what we do is we go and we watch CNN and we see about Hamas and missiles and then we go to the, the Bible and we're like, oh yeah, you know, these, the, the, the fire that falls out out of heaven on Israel is like the missiles. And you're like, well, what in the world are you talking about? And, and this is what people do. Instead of sitting down and actually studying the word of God in a more thorough and deep way, to understand who Jesus is and how, like, he, when he says, I fulfill all of the Old Testament, he opens to his apostles, starting in Genesis, working his way all the way through, and saying, this is about me, and we all think, oh, that's cute, and that fits on a Christmas card, and that's awesome. And then we sit down, we're like, yeah, he's kind of like Jonah, you know. It's like, he's kind of like Job, a little bit. But the structure of Matthew is the structure of the Old Testament. And, and we'll tie ourselves into knots 
right? Trying, trying to make all these connections with Judaism and Christianity when we can't sit down and make connections between Jesus and the Old Testament. Now, in all the Gospels, Israel rejects her Messiah. This is what she excels at. I think Israel's spiritual gift is rejecting her God. Matthew's typological plot shows that the, this history of rejection is consistent with Israel's entire story from Genesis to Malachi. Jesus comes as a new Moses, and they resist him, just like they resisted Moses. This is what Stephen talks about when he's martyred. Jesus comes as the greater David. They resisted him, and he had to flee into the wilderness. So does Jesus. Jesus teaches with wisdom greater than Solomon, but many in Israel refuse his yoke, just as they did Solomon's household. We won't, we won't take that yoke upon you. And when Jesus is talking about yokes and how it's light, he's referencing uh, of himself and, and the house of Solomon, which they threw off because the yoke was too heavy. Jesus is Jeremiah, and like Jeremiah, he is a suffering prophet. What does that even mean? When is the last time any of us read Jeremiah? Like, I had to go and look that up. Because I'm not just going to sit here and talk at you guys. I'm saying... That he, I, I had to check and make sure that that was actually true when I wrote that down. And I was like, oh, yeah, Jeremiah is a, is a suffering prophet. Maybe I should read Jeremiah more often. What Matthew makes explicit is that in rejecting these servants, Israel was rejecting the Lord who sent them. Right? Every time God sends someone to Israel, they reject the one God sent, thereby rejecting God. This is what Jesus explains in John thirteen twenty: If you reject the one that God sends, you reject God. There's no accepting God without accepting the one he sends. You have to accept Moses, you have to accept Joshua, you have to accept David, and by doing so, you accept God. If you accept Jesus, you accept God. There's no other way to do it. You can't reject Jesus and still get the Father. Now, at the outset of his ministry, Jesus chose 12 disciples. This was a significant number, because what he's doing is choosing 12, just like there were 12 tribes, there's now 12 disciples. He's making a statement. He is the true Israel. These are his children. It is a new nation. He's calling to himself a people apart from the old Israel. He's calling out a new Israel. And he began with a remnant of the old. He began with a portion of the old loaf. And, and when, when God makes a people, he makes it like you make sourdough, right? Because you use some of the old loaf every time you make a new. I'm not incorrect about this, right? I'm, I, I need a little kale said how you make sourdough. Yes, okay, cool. You have to use some of the old loaf. And this is what God does every time he makes a people. It's, it, throughout the Old Testament, there's always a remnant upon which he now builds something new. And so is it new or is it old? And this is what befuddles us. Is it, so when you make sourdough, is it old sourdough or new sourdough? Um, uh, the only way I can understand this is um, every time they make Guinness, they use, they use some of the last batch of Guinness, and this goes all the way back, actually even further than Guinness was established, to a beer that was made in Ireland in like the 17th century. And so the, every time Jesus makes a new batch of beer, he uses a little bit of the old batch, right? So you guys are like sourdough. You are like a cup of Guinness. He never just starts over. He never just starts over. Think about it. Adam fell, and Adam goes out of the garden into the wilderness, and did, did he didn't strike him down and make a new man. No, he took the crooked thing he had, and he, he was like, okay, now we're going to do something different. And, and he goes, and then he gets Noah. And then he goes, okay, uh, this is not working out, so what we're going to do is just kill everyone. And so, No, he says, okay, we're going to put some of you on an ark, and then, and then you're going to survive, and off, off of you I'm going to do something new. And then he gets all the way down to Abraham. He says, okay, I'm going to separate you, a little portion of the loaf, and I'm going to make a new loaf now. And this is the way that it always works. Now, 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, verse 6 through 15. I, I, I hope now, when I read this, it makes more sense than it ever has. That is my hope and my aspiration. Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Adam is Esau. Old Testament Israel is Esau. Jesus is the, is the second-born son, the son that comes later, that all the other sons serve. And, and why? Because he was chosen. He is the chosen one of God. And, and you were chosen or not chosen because of your relationship to him. You are not chosen because of you. You are not Israel because of you. You are not the bride of Christ because of you. Everything that you are or are not is in, entirely in your relationship to Jesus Christ. And, and we have to understand that, right? The idea that you are chosen becomes this disgusting and corrupt thing in five seconds because you think, oh, I was chosen. Oh, I was, yes, yes, like one of the beautiful pears on the tree. I'm going in the salad. I'm, I'm the favored one. And no, that's not how, no, Jesus was chosen and he's the tree and because God is gracious and kind, you are an extension of him. You are a part of him and because you're a part of him, you're the fruit of God. You're the children of God. You're chosen for the salad, because of Jesus. Now, this understanding of Jesus, right? Notice what I did there. I jumped from Matthew to Romans. Because if you go back to Romans chapter 1, this same concept that Jesus is the, is the true Israel of God was not just car- carried, um, brought forward by Matthew and the authors of the Gospels themselves, but later Paul picked up on this. Paul also picked up on this. So we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sees the gospel as a fulfillment of the saving promises of the Old Testament to bring the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations. That's what Abraham was told in Genesis. Now, part of the Old Testament, Israel's calling was to serve as a light to the nations. Be a light to the nations. Jesus didn't just make up that metaphor. 
they were a, a kingdom of priests who were meant to mediate the covenant of God to the nations. And part of why they failed, part of why they had to be put out, right, and, and a remnant had to be taken from them, is they failed to be the light of God in the world. Because you, Jesus shows up and are the Jewish nation at that point in Judea giving an open-hearted people. They're just like, you know what? All the nations are sitting in darkness. The Romans are sitting in darkness. Everyone is sitting in darkness. And we have, to, we have to explain to them who Yahweh is and open the temple to them because there's no other way of salvation. No, that is not what they're like. Right? Even the ones who Jesus pulls out of that nonsense and creates a new church, nobody is oriented towards the nations. So Jesus comes, and he is the light to the nations. He calls himself the light of the world. Paul talks about the fact that he appeared from heaven like a light. All of this, this metaphor is taken directly from the prophets. It's taken from the Old Testament, and it was the calling of Israel. And Jesus is fulfilling that calling because, why? He is the true Israel of God. Now, you set that aside. <laughs> and Christ is the seed of David, the Son of God. He is the Lord. Now, the Son of God is a phrase used of... Israel, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 to 23, Israel was referred to as God's son or firstborn because the mantle of Adam had passed on from Noah to the patriarchs and down to the seed, Israel. Okay, so if you, if we, we looked at Exodus 1 a few weeks ago. When you, if you turn to Exodus 1, I won't because I'm running out of time, but what you see is that Israel becomes sort of a corporate new Adam. This is the plan now to make a new humanity, and, and the language that is used of Israel in, the, in Exodus 1 is the same language used of Adam back in Genesis. So you have the new Adam, and then you have a corporate Adam. Okay? And all of this is transferring now to Jesus. Jesus comes, and he's the fulfillment of all these things. Israel was re- referred to as God's son or firstborn. Israel then is presented as a corporate Adam in Exodus 1, which alludes to Genesis, if you turn there, they allude to Genesis 1.28 and Exodus 1.7. Israel was to exercise rule and dominion over the promised land, which was like a new Eden. That's how it's described in Exodus 15.17. God's firstborn son, Israel, was to declare the ways of the Lord of the nations and bring them into relationship with him. Israel was called throughout the Old Testament to show the nations how to have a right relationship with God, how to treat their neighbor in a godly way, and how to be faithful stewards of the earth's resources. This was the calling of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, this title, son, to which this calling belongs, was transferred to David in 2 Samuel 7.14. Remember that? This is my son, and, and he shall sit upon the throne, and his son shall sit upon the throne for eternity. So you go from Adam to corporate Adam to now David, and, and you see that this, this, this title is transferred. Right? There's a succession of the kingdom, which is what we're going to talk about in the next sermon in this series. Deuteronomy 17 talks about a king who is the fulfillment of all the hopes and aspirations and dreams of restoring mankind from the fall. And the sonship is given to him. He's supposed to, right, the king is supposed to be God, Yahweh's representative on earth. He's the mediator. He is the one in whom all the promises will be fulfilled. And who is the son of David, according to Romans chapter 1? Who is that son that all of these things now coalesce in? It's not Solomon, right? It's not Hezekiah, as much as we love Hezekiah. It is Jesus. And that's what the 42 generations in Matthew's uh, genealogy is all about. 
The one we're waiting for is Jesus. The one who fulfills all, all the calling, the calling of Israel in the Old Testament is Jesus. The one who fulfills the calling of David is Jesus. Since Yahweh is not limited to a local region or territory, but is the creator God and sovereign of the whole cosmos, the rule of, da- of the Davidic king would have repercussions for all the nations, not just for Israel. Right? Did, did anyone ever think, when you're reading the Old Testament, that God cared about Israel and doesn't care about anything else? I mean, when you start reading it, there are some moments where you're like, yeah, yeah, like, go into that promised land, kill those wicked people. Right? Why is the Jewish nation that Jesus finds in Judea so insular, so inward-focused? Is it because they were told from being very young that they were chosen? And, and they think it's about us, the story's about us? How quickly do the people of God think that the story is about them? And, and the reason we're sh- so shallow, and the reason we're so ineffectual, and the reason that we're so confused is because we believe the same thing. We think it's about us. Right? I mean, I have a hard enough time getting people to think about the fact that they descend like, theologically from Calvin. But now I want you to understand you, you descend covenantally from Abraham. Right? You, you are not rootless evangelicals. We're saving you out of rootless evangelicalism. Right? And, and this is several different authors. C.S. Lewis said, you know, man is um, saved in multiple ways. Right? He, he's, he's saved in levels. And the last one is his wallet. That's Right? How you spend your money is the last conversion. Well, you are all of you saved in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the missions of Redeemer Church is to save you from rootless evangelicalism. Okay? You are a people that descend from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You are here not because of your flesh. I, can't, I cannot sit down and draw a path back, right? But I can, however, because of your faith, Say that, yes, you have now entered into a story, into a, into a community, into a commonwealth, in, into a body politic whose Lord is the heaven, right, the creator of everything, and you are now a member of that party, that body, that nation, those people. Your history extends all the way back to the garden, and it will go on for eternity in heaven because of your relationship to Jesus. Remember, it's not, right, you will taste you will taste of the essence of God. You, you will be deified in one sense because you will go on living forever where you cannot be hurt by sin, Satan, or death, you, and you will go on living forever because of your relationship to Jesus, the true Israel of God. <laughs> Noah was not walking on the lower decks and found a hole. Say, so, oh, you know what? This, there's a hole in this boat. The water is seeping in, Right? When they were coming through on the dry ground and Moses was leading them and they were being sprinkled from above, that's how the baptism worked. Don't come at me. Okay, they were all sprinkled. Some of them didn't trip and fall into the wall of water and drowned. Right? The people that God said he's taking out of this world to save, he will save. That's what the Gospels is all about. And, and you will be saved because of who you are and what you are in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, and the Son of God is Israel. That, that's what Matthew was talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. It's what he says in Romans 1.3. It's what he says like seven or eight more times, chapter 1, verse 9, 5, 10, 8.3, 8.29, 8.32. Jesus is the Son of God, and you are the children of God because, of your, because you're united to him, because you are in him. Now, let, let's go back for a second. 
Because when we say things like, you know, um, when we're talking about the law and we're talking about all these things, reconstructionism and theonomy and all these things, people get very confused. And I think the language confuses, even Calvinism, right, that, that, that term confuses us. But let me put it to you a different way. Okay, you are sitting here in a covenant renewal worship service. Now, why do we call it that? Well, because we want to worship God according to his word. And we sat down, right? There, there were some smarter people than me. Jeff Meyer was, was the one who put this together. He had the breakthrough. He's like, you know what? Why are we trying to figure out how to worship God when he tells us? And he sits down and he, and he opens Leviticus. And, and what you, you, you come to understand what all these types and shadows have to do with Jesus. And you come up with a liturgy based on the, on, on the way God told us to worship, but it's funneled through Jesus. So what are the laws that we're supposed to keep or not keep? Well, you have to sit down, you have to look at the laws, you have to consider Jesus and what he fulfilled and what he didn't fulfill and what's still going on, and, and you filter everything through him. This is partially why, I'm going to say something controversial now, the, the, the reading of Psalms I have a little bit of trouble with because I, I think my personal view is that they, you ought not to sing them just as they are. You ought to filter them through Jesus, like Isaac Watts does. Isaac Watts' songs are the perfect way to sing the Psalms because they're all in reference to Jesus. Jesus is the point. Your people, you are, you are a people that go back to the garden. And in Christ, right, those 42 generations, that, those are your people. That is your history. I don't know what happened in your life. I don't know your situation with your parents. I don't know the situation with your cousins. I don't know if you can go very far back in your own family tree. But when you, but when you come into Christ through baptism, you are coming into a body, a people, a nation that extends all the way back to the garden. The church started in the garden. And, and, and as time went on, that, met, that, right, that metaphor was not understood, but we understand it now. You are the people of God. You have a long and storied history, a, a long storied faithfulness that God has demonstrated to you and your forebears, and it's yours because of Jesus. You are not alone in this world. You are not without hope in this world. You are not without a story in this world. You're not without a way of understanding what this book is about because you have Jesus. And if you have him, then you have all of the things that I have listed. I remember, <laughs> after reading a Kayim Potok novel, I was talking to Pastor Dean, who, who used to be here, and I was like, you know, I'm really jealous of this guy in this story. He goes, his father dies, and he goes, to the, he goes to the graveside, and he sings an entire book of the Psalms. And I was like, yeah, you know, the Jewish people really understand something that we don't. And you know, you know, many of you know, Dean, you know what he said? Memorize a book of the Psalms. <laughs> it's like, you don't need to get the hat to do that, right? You don't, you don't need to convert to Judaism to, to understand who your people are, what your songs are, what your anthems are. You're, you're not bereft of this. It's not like you have to go and join this. You're in the group that owns these things. Own them. And, and, and my exhortation to all of you Right? When, when you start to feel listless in this world, when you start to wonder who, who and what are you a part of and what's going on, there is a God in heaven who, who telegraphed the life of a single man through, through the 42 generations of, of a nation. He, this story is under his control. And, and you are now brought into that story, and you are made, right, both the wondrous past and the hopeful future are yours. 
And, and they're yours because of Jesus. And so we worship him for that reason. We, we, we pray in his name for that reason. We're baptized into him in his name for that reason. And, and so right, don't look enviously towards others. You own these things. They're yours, so own them. Own this book. Own its history. Own its heritage. And, and delight in it. Because the yoke, right, the yoke isn't heavy. Jesus showed us it's not. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his ministry and his life. We thank you, Lord God, that you have saved us out of the world, that you have brought us into an ark, that you have brought us, Lord, through on dry ground, that you have made us one with yourself, and and thereby, Lord, have given us a people and a history and a future. We thank you and we praise you for these things, and may may we understand them more deeply, and may we rejoice in them more richly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and amen.